Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and war. Today's topic is fighting to win in American foreign policy. Our speaker is John Bolton, who served as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush, and he was the U.S. national security advisor for Donald Trump. John published his memoir, The Room Where It Happened, about his time working in the Trump administration. I want to learn from John what he would advise the Israelis on how to win the war in Gaza, what Zelensky should do to turn around the conflict in Ukraine, and how Taiwan can deter Chinese aggression. Buckle up. John, if you were advising the Israeli government today, what would you recommend them to do next in Gaza? The important strategic context for Israel and for the United States is to see that this is a struggle not just against Hamas, but against Iran. And that what Hamas instituted on October the 7th was a part of the Revolutionary Guard's ring of fire strategy around Israel. Now, I don't think this strategy is going particularly well for Iran at the moment, largely because of how effective the IDF has been against Hamas in the campaign in Gaza. I think it's important for Israel to continue the campaign against Hamas's military capability and its political leadership. And I think that despite all of the pressures that have been brought to bear on the Israeli government to have a ceasefire, to consider the exchange of hostages. But the central strategic reality for Israel is to do what the government said it wanted to do and eliminate Hamas's military and political capabilities. Delaying that or acknowledging that you're willing to achieve less than that would be a huge mistake. How do they win the peace? Well, I think first you have to win the war, and I define that as finishing what Netanyahu said they're well on the way to accomplishing. He said they've eliminated eight of Hamas's 12 combat battalions. Okay, that means there are four to go. Many of those people remain, but they're combat ineffective at this point. It means getting more of the Hamas political leadership, and it means destroying physically every square inch of the tunnel system under Gaza. Now, People say, well, you can defeat Hamas, but you can't defeat an idea. I don't actually buy that. We defeated the government of Germany in World War II, and we also defeated Nazism. There's a huge question of what to do with the population of Gaza, and that's a big subject to discuss. But eliminating the terrorist threat always was a legitimate objective, and it should not be compromised. Switching topics, if you were going to advise Zelensky in the Ukraine at this point, what advice would you give him? I'd say grit your teeth and continue to push for American military assistance. Try to keep your population's morale up, discouraged as they must be, watching Washington's inability to come to a decision on the aid package. And think about how you're going to resist not just the Russian military, but the coming Kremlin diplomatic effort to try and put the war on ice and allow Russia to consolidate its territorial gains. Sadly, at the moment, Russia is actually making territorial advances, small, but not enough 
to convince Putin that it's time finally to accept the diplomatic outcome. But that time will come. And I think the pressure on the United States in an election year to have a ceasefire in Ukraine will be quite significant. This is a very difficult period for the Ukrainian people and for their government. But it's not a time to despair. It's a time to toughen up and hope that European and American resolve lasts through the American election. Beyond that, I can't really predict. What would you advise the Europeans on the Ukrainian conflict? Well, you know, the Europeans have said a lot of things about supporting Ukraine, and they've done a lot in terms of providing economic assistance. President Emmanuel Macron of France just said that he wouldn't rule out supplying military forces to Ukraine. And that's something, frankly, that if Joe Biden had left open before the Russian invasion in February 2022, along with some other steps, might have actually deterred the Russians. If they had to worry about NATO forces on the ground in Ukraine, it would be a very different kind of war. I'm not suggesting we do it immediately, but I think we've made a mistake in not letting the Russians worry about it. The possibility of a wider war could well have had the effect of deterring the Russians. I had Hal Brands on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he recommended asymmetric warfare on behalf of Ukraine to sabotage Russian infrastructure. U.S. policymakers were afraid of escalation and didn't want to encourage this kind of behavior. What would you suggest to Zelensky about asymmetric warfare? Well, I think he should be engaged in it. Certainly cyber offensive operations make a good deal of sense. But this is part of the way that we have prevented the Ukrainians from carrying out a coherent strategy by our unwillingness to give them the military means in a timely manner for them to do it. Consider the debate over Abrams tanks, over Attackums missiles, over F-16s. You wouldn't need to use asymmetric warfare if you had the capability to go after the Russians directly. And it's only been within the past 10 days or so that senior NATO officials have acknowledged that attacking targets inside Russia was permissible. Again, the White House was deterred by the fear of a wider war. So it's okay for the Russians to pound Ukraine into the sand, but it's not okay for Ukraine to hit targets in Russia. What kind of logic is that? What kind of self-defense is that? So I think, sadly, by our unwillingness to supply what Ukraine needed in a strategic and coherent fashion, we've made it harder for them to win the war. And so the resort to asymmetric warfare is an option that they have to take, probably should have taken long ago. If Trump were to win the election, how would U.S.-Ukraine policies change? What he has said during the campaign is that if he had been president, the Russians never would have invaded, which is a hard proposition to prove or disprove, but he says it with great political effect. He would just get Zelensky and Putin in a room together and solve it in 24 hours. That's ridiculous. He may be the only person on the planet who's even willing to say that. But let's say he did get Zelensky and Putin in a room together and tried to bring the conflict to a quick conclusion. He would fail because the parties and the circumstances are not going to permit that. Now, that would be failure. But we know Donald Trump never fails. So that would mean that responsibility rests on one of the other two people in the room. And here's where I worry about Trump's fascination with Putin that Putin would know how to work Trump in a way it would be entirely to Zelensky's disadvantage, and Zelensky would get the blame and Putin would benefit. I think it's a 
very dangerous scenario for Zelensky, and I hope they're thinking about how to play it if Trump does get elected. This week, Sweden joined NATO. Does this benefit U.S. interests? It absolutely does. And Finland joining shortly before that, they applied together. Sweden was kept out by a combination of Hungary and Turkey. That opposition, illegitimate uh, as it was, has finally been overcome. Sweden already spends more than 2% of its GDP on defense. Finland spends a little bit less. They'll be over 2% very quickly, though. Despite their neutralist foreign policies for many years, they have very fine militaries. And as the Finns demonstrated in the Winter War before the outbreak of World War II, they know how to fight the Russians very well. I think we should be proud and happy that they finally joined NATO. It's a tragedy it took the invasion of Ukraine to do it, but this is entirely to our benefit. This is one of the worst setbacks for the Russians in the two-year course of this war. After 75 years of neutrality to bring Finland and Sweden into NATO is a huge accomplishment, and it shows what we've said all along. Russia's afraid to cross a NATO boundary, and these two countries concluded that it was only by getting behind a NATO boundary that they could be safe. President Trump was asked by a reporter, would he defend Montenegro if attacked under Article 5? And he said no. It wouldn't be in U.S. interests. How do you think about that in the context of expanding NATO surrounding Russia? Does it harm or hurt to continually extend the Article 5 protection? I think where NATO can be faulted was not considering the potential implications of leaving a gray zone between the eastern border of NATO, if you will, and the western border of Russia. And there are a couple of gray zones. The one we're obviously concerned with right now is in Central Europe, with Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine. We didn't extend the NATO alliance to encircle Russia. We extended the NATO alliance because the countries of Eastern and Central Europe, having been first overrun by the Nazis in World War II and then overrun by Soviets in the immediate aftermath, wanted security. They didn't want to be at anybody's mercy again. They came and were pounding on NATO's door almost from the minute that the Berlin Wall began to fall. And Hungary was ironically one of the first to come and join NATO. We weren't seeking them out. They were clamoring to get into foreign ministries all over the existing NATO alliance so they can join. And it was the right thing to do to take them in from an American point of view because it extended the space of countries that were part of our alliance, meaning it was that much harder for Russia or anybody else in the future to cause harm to the body of NATO itself. Where NATO failed, however, was in not following through on the logic of its expansion. George W. Bush proposed in April of 2008 to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO on a fast track. That would have closed the gray zone for a good part of the border of the area between NATO's eastern border and Russia's western border. If Ukraine had become a NATO member in 2009, 2010, I don't think there ever would have been an invasion in 2014 and certainly not in 2022. But we left a gray zone and that was an invitation to meddle, especially in Ukraine, which in the Putin mind is part of greater Russia. It's not just Putin's war, but what they're about is recreating the Russian Empire. This is not recreating the Soviet Union. This is recreating the idea of a Russian civilization. And they want Ukraine, Belarus, and many of the other territories now independent to be part of it. 
We didn't anticipate that, and we left Ukraine vulnerable. When Bush proposed bringing them in in 2008, France and Germany objected, and that was the end of it. That was a big mistake then. And we've got other countries. Moldova is a good example. The Caucasus countries, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, still vulnerable to Russian interference. We need a more coherent policy. We've plugged some of the donut holes with Sweden and Finland coming in. We need to think through what else we need to do. Ukraine is part of the ultimate diplomatic peace negotiations will demand being included in NATO to garner that Article 5 protection. Is that something the United States should do in that post-war period or not? NATO has a longstanding tradition that it doesn't admit countries that have part of their territory occupied by foreign adversaries, because that would mean that you're admitting a country that's at war with another country since its territory is occupied and you're bringing not just a new member in, but you're bringing war to NATO. And that's why I think ultimately we should have been clear and we need to be clear now that the legitimate Ukraine objective here is a restoration of full sovereignty and territorial integrity. We should be pursuing a strategy to do that, and that means including the Crimea. Isn't that off the table, basically? I mean, if Putin said, let's sit down and chat right now, and he said, I'm going to keep Crimea, I think the Ukrainians would accept that. You know, I'm willing to accept that is no longer Ukrainian territory, and I want Article 5, and I want to be a member of NATO. So they deal with those restrictions. Well, I think it exposes why Ukraine is in a very vulnerable position and why I'm somewhat surprised the Kremlin hasn't pushed this effort already to partition the country along a ceasefire line along the current front lines, which would roughly double Russia's control of Ukrainian territory. I'm very much opposed to any kind of what some people call a Korean solution to acknowledge the Russians have control of a certain amount. Ukraine has control of the rest of it and will admit the rest of it to NATO, because you may have noticed Korean Peninsula has been divided since 1945. So if you're telling the Ukrainians, hey, you've got 75 years at least of division of your country ahead of you, if you take the Korean solution, they're not going to accept it. They're fighting for their independence. And what we're fighting for is to show that the kind of unprovoked aggression that Russia initiated in 2014 isn't going to succeed on the European continent. And right now, we're not doing a very good job of that. So We either ought to get serious about the objective we say is our objective, restoration of full sovereignty and territorial integrity, or get in a different line of work. What would you advise the leadership of Taiwan to reduce the prospect of a Chinese conflict? Well, you know, we've got a new administration uh, coming in to be inaugurated in Taiwan shortly, the Democratic Progressive Party, which ironically is the one most strongly opposed to being dominated by China. They've got to do more to strengthen Taiwanese defenses in a strategic way to deter a possible Chinese attack or blockade, which I actually think is the more likely approach Beijing would take to isolate the island. But I think they've also got to do more with others in East and South Asia, with Japan, with South Korea. We're seeing a real acknowledgement of the Chinese threat along China's Indo-Pacific periphery. And I think Taiwan has to be more integrated into that. The Biden administration, I will say, has done some very positive things there. Taiwan has a real opportunity to take advantage of it. They've got to guard against the possibility of a Trump 
desire to have big trade agreements and others with China that may leave Taiwan in the lurch. Trump used to say when he was president, he'd take a Sharpie pen and point to the tip and he'd say, see that? That's Taiwan. Then he'd point to the resolute desk in front of him and say, see, that's China. That's what he thought of Taiwan. Taiwan is very important to the United States, both economically and politically. And I've said for many years, I think we should provide diplomatic recognition to Taiwan. I think that would help deter China from taking belligerent action against Taiwan. You mentioned that blockade is the most likely military action. What can Taiwan do to undermine a potential blockade? The most important thing is to develop more self-sufficiency to last during the period of time it might take to break a blockade. We're a long way away. We don't know what Japan and others would do to help us out. So you can't come to Taiwan's aid very quickly. And so their ability to withstand that sort of blockade, remember what happened in Berlin when the Soviets cut off land access. I'm not suggesting that a Taiwan airlift would solve the problem. It's much more difficult. So they need a capacity to last for the time it may take for us to break the blockade. We ought to think about ways to deter China from even thinking about a blockade. And one way that might be helpful would be to announce that we're going to home port several American military vessels in Kaohsiung, the biggest port in Taiwan at the southern part of the island, so that the Chinese would know that it's not just a question of blockading Taiwan, they'd be blockading Americans. And that might be the sort of thing that pushes the Chinese back, not just from outright invasion, but from the blockade alternative as well. Blockades can take time. They probably need a year's worth of food. It's not easy for those Chinese naval vessels to be too close to Taiwan because it opens it up from missile actions from the island itself. And if they expanded their submarine force, it would be very challenging for the Chinese to do much. Do we see Taiwan doing those sort of actions? And if not, why not? Those are certainly reasonable things to do. And I would consider them part of establishing deterrence against the invasion itself. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I don't think the Chinese will physically invade. Number one, Taiwan is 100 miles away across open ocean in the Taiwan Strait. I mean, the Russians had trouble walking across the Russian-Ukrainian border. It's a lot harder for the Chinese. And I don't think fundamentally the Chinese want to grind Taiwan into the dust. I think they want all of that productive capacity, amazing industrial base, specifically the chip manufacturing fabs. They want all of that to fall into their lap like a piece of ripe fruit. They don't want to have a war on Taiwan. So if they threw up a blockade, the moment we might seek to break that blockade needs to be a moment when we think we can break it entirely. You don't want a long protracted conflict. I don't think the Chinese do either. So if they're not willing to risk that, then that helps indicate that we do have the possibility of deterring the blockade in the first place, but we need to do a lot more to get there. What do you think Japan's response will be in that situation? I think it depends 90% on American leadership. If we lead effectively, I think the Japanese will follow. You know, they've had an amazing debate in Japan over the past 30 years about becoming a normal nation. And they've concluded they are, that they should defend themselves and look out for their interest in their region, especially against North Korea and China. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida came to Washington last year and promised to double Japan's defense spending from 1% to 2% of GDP over five years. It would make Japan the third biggest military in the world after the U.S. and China. Think about that. That would be a huge plus for Taiwan. Getting Taiwan closer with South Korea, Japan, Australia, Singapore, 
really should be a very high priority for the new administration in Taipei. Do you think the South Koreans will participate in this conflict as well? I think it's something we should be pushing for. I would give the Biden administration credit for a three-way conversation, Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. You know, it's a lot of historical animosities between the Koreans and the Japanese. For all of us to function more effectively, everybody's got to turn the page. We need South Korea and Japan and the U.S. more integrated into an alliance like our NATO partners are in the North Atlantic. We still have a long way to go there, but I think we've seen some important early steps, and I would get Taiwan involved in that just as soon as possible. Victor Chow wrote a book explaining why Asia isn't like NATO, that the animosity between the countries make alliances much more difficult. How do you think about the lack of alliances, and then how do you incorporate places like Australia and India into that situation? Asia's not Europe. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, you know, France and Germany were lovers for centuries before NATO came along. They managed to get over it, and so can the Koreans and the Japanese and everybody else. It's going to be complex. It will not follow the same pattern as NATO. It'll go in fits and starts. There'll be different pieces to it. I think all that's fine as long as we're moving at a fast enough pace that the combination of these actions forms effective deterrence against Chinese aggression. But we're still behind where we need to be. And what reminds me of NATO and Russia and Southeast Asia versus China is the Germans very much wanted to trade with Russia, but wanted the U.S. to defend it against potential Russian aggression. And here it's the same way as in Southeast Asia. All these countries desperately want to maximize trade and economic opportunity with China, but they don't want Chinese to be aggressive and are hoping the U.S. would step up and protect each individual country. How should we think about us being the sheriff in town? This is something, for example, that Trump is opposed to. He expects you to defend yourself first and not rely on the United States' efforts to protect you. We should ask, what are the U.S. interests at stake here? And we're not in the business of renting our capability to defend people, nor are we doing it as an act of charity to Ukraine, to the Philippines, to Taiwan or anybody else. We do it because it increases security for the United States and for our broader alliances. And that has to be the term on which other countries associate with us in political military alliances. We've tried it in Southeast Asia before. It didn't work back during the Cold War. Circumstances are very different. And I think you see in a lot of countries there the increasing understanding that China is a real threat as they see what China is doing directly affecting countries around the South China Sea. They will move in our direction. It's not going to happen at the same pace it did in Europe after World War II. But if they see evidence, and I don't think it'll take much, of actual Chinese aggression along that Indo-Pacific periphery, it could have a galvanizing effect very quickly. When China was not a threat, the Filipinos asked the Americans to leave Clark Air Force Base, to leave the major naval base there. And then as soon as the tide turned, oh my God, how are we going to defend ourselves? Hey, America, would you be willing to build at your expense a new airfield and a new naval base? In your book, in the room where it happened, you mention Trump's frustration that there were American troops in South Korea, for example, and that it was costing America a lot of money. And he was always questioning, is this in America's interest? It's very expensive. You're a wealthy country. I don't understand. Why aren't you paying for this? 
Well, that's because for Trump, everything was totally transactional. And because he thought he understood balance sheets, dollars and cents appealed to him and broader strategic questions kind of passed by without much mention. You have to look at any alliance through the prism of what's in America's interest. And our continuing presence in Japan and Korea has been very important to us over the years. And I think if China insists on hegemony in the Indo-Pacific as a first step and global hegemony as a second step, we have to look at a counter strategy. And it's unfolding as we speak. So there's no single formula that gives the answer. But I think we have to be sure that countries, when they ask for our help, understand that we have some requirements too. Sometimes it's easier to see them in retrospect than it is in the short term, but recognize we have no hegemonic or territorial ambitions in Southeast Asia. We've been there before. It's China that's the threat, and they can't move out of China's neighborhood. In your book, you spent a significant time talking about the process of decision-making in American foreign policy in the Trump administration. How would you contrast the Biden administration's process for how decisions are made, and is that process a good one? You know, process in the Trump administration, it was hard to find, few and far between, and hard fought to get it done. In the Biden administration, much like the Obama administration, process is a god. And they meet and they send papers back and forth, and it impedes decision-making. There's no right formula here, but while one can fairly say decision-making on national security in the Trump administration was chaotic far too often, what we tried to do is keep it running on essential issues at the cabinet level and hope that it didn't break down completely. Whereas in the Biden administration, it's much more centralized in the White House. And I think process often drives decision-making into gridlock. It seems to me that the State Department at all levels seems to be generally on the same page as the president, in contrast to the Trump administration, where it seemed that members of state were opposed to what President Trump was wanting to do. How do you govern if your State Department is opposed to what you're trying to accomplish? Well, it's very hard, and other presidents have seen it too. I mean, the State Department, like all government departments, has a culture of its own. I don't call it the deep state, but there are bureaucratic cultures. Public economics theory teaches us this, and the State Department culture is very different from the Treasury Department culture or the Defense Department culture. What I've said based on all of my years at State in different positions, what we really need, we need a president and a secretary of state who will begin a cultural revolution at the State Department against the problems of what they call clientitis, which means favoring the foreign country at the expense of the United States, or going native, as they sometimes call it. And the problem of moral equivalency or mirror imaging, where country X has its point of view, the U.S. has its point of view, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. I'm not looking for platonic theorists at the State Department. I want advocates for the United States. And it would take a cultural revolution and it would take more than one administration, but it's long overdue. And I think in the Trump administration, we missed an opportunity to get started on it. There were a group of anonymous young people at the State Department that drafted a letter to the Biden administration saying it was opposed to the war in Gaza. Was that appropriate for those members of the State Department to behave that way? Absolutely not. If they were political appointees of the Biden administration, they should go to their superiors and tell them that privately and, if need be, resign. And if they're careerists, they're entitled to express their opinions up the chain. 
but they're not entitled to be separate from the political leadership of the country. The State Department, it turns out, like the rest of the federal government, works for the president. And if they're career people and don't like the policy, they can resign too. We're not conducting experiments in democratic theory within the State Department bureaucracy, and they need to get used to it. So how did this happen? Why did it happen? And why weren't they uh, expelled? Well, I think in part because, although you said rightly, the State Department is more in sync with Biden than it was with Trump or any Republican president for that matter. Actually, the State Department, large chunks of it are to the left of the Biden White House. You saw a manifestation of that with that letter. Would it be appropriate for the Biden administration to do a search of their emails and figure out who these people were and then fire them? Or is that beyond the pale? You know, I think it's probably too hard to do, but I'd find a few people who are political appointees and say, look, I respect your opinion. And if you respect your opinion, you should resign out of a sense of your own integrity. Have a few of them resign and say, you don't have to have a job in the State Department. There's no constitutional right to it. And if you don't want to get with the program, fine, leave. I end each podcast with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to American foreign policy and a security interests? Well, I think it's always a bad bet to vote against the United States. And I am a fond admirer of a statement that Winston Churchill once made. He said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing, usually after they've tried everything else. And so while you're going through the trying everything else process, it can get tedious. But I'd say, again, don't bet against America. Thanks, John, for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was forget the two-state solution. Our speaker was Elliot Abrams, who's a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Elliot served as deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for George W. Bush, where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House and a special representative for Iran and Venezuela for Donald Trump. Elliot explained why the Biden administration and European leaders continue to pursue a two-state solution after the violence of October 7th, even though the Israeli public abandoned this concept a decade ago. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.